Welcome to Becoming. We appreciate you tuning in. Today, our guest is Brett Keltner. Brett is a PhD and the founder and president of Winalytics. Winalytics is a go-to-market and revenue acceleration consultancy. He is also the author of the book we are going to be speaking about today, The Revenue Acceleration Playbook. Winalytics helps clients reach their, their top growth potential by shifting from product-driven conversations to authentic conversations that anchor on buyer-defined value. So a lot of really interesting information in, in your book. Brent, why don't we start with why, why, why the book? Why did you write it? Yeah, I um, was not, as you know from reading the book, I was not trained as uh, in sales or revenue leadership. I was trained as an academic, but I developed a method for growing revenue really quickly, which is all around uh, not focusing on selling, but focusing on having great conversations. Conversations that made people want to come back and talk to you more, felt that felt value added to them. Um, and I did that as a revenue leader across four higher education companies, four quick growth successes, and then as a consultant, um, and just wanted to make the method more available to other people. Uh, we talk about a Winalytics, authenticity wins. When we focus on our buyer first, we all do better. We make more money quicker and we like our work more. Oh my God, just speaking, singing to the choir. thousand percent. I know how we talk about that all the time. Um, I love your, I, I also sell real estate and I love in your book that you use a real estate example. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I, re I relate it all too much to, uh, I, I'm, I've always been a consultative seller. Um, so I resonated with everything that you were speaking about. And I knew both examples of the person who was just all about, you know, oh, how do I get this closed? And the other one that actually took an interest yep. and asked questions. You And, and you are so right. The buyer's always going to win. They're always going to have the last word. So we're here for them. Ask the questions, direct the process. You get there quicker and everyone's happier. So I, I, I love that you wrote the book. And I think it's so interesting that you came, you're, you're an analytic and, and you came to, because this is a very, you know, when you take that approach to selling, it's an EQ, right? Versus the analytics, but it, but it all works. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a, it's not in the, in the book, but it's a story I tell about uh, Kirk Delario, who uh, was is a first generation college student and did some work with uh, Kirk and his co-founder Drew and the team at Mainstay. They have a conversational AI chatbot that really helps students, particularly first gen students, get the resources they need to pick the right college and then enroll and be successful. <laughs> I remember early in that engagement, he said to me, Brent, you're a robot. You just asked the same questions. <laughs> and I was like, Kirk, I'm just like, where's the heart? And I'm like, Kirk, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend. Like, let's put your voice into this. This is the framework, right? Let's put your voice into it. And uh, so we, we adjusted, you know, to capture his voice and how they was comfortable asking questions and guiding and providing value. But he came back to me six months later. And he said, you're right. When you ask a consistent set of questions that focus on what the buyer wants and becomes more successful, I can actually hear each buyer, right? I can filter out the noise. And it's like, I hear those two or three key things that really get them excited, leaning in and energetic, right? I'm going through a process like a doctor does or the diagnostic or an attorney, and I can focus yep. on those things. So you're this idea of being, I was, uh, Sort of obviously, I was a PhD and I did 
you know, I've gravitated towards analytics, but, you know, good questioning makes us all analytical, right? Because if we have, we know how we, there's only a certain number of ways you drive value for your customers. And so if you just ask those questions consistently to see what lands with them, you, you see the patterns much quicker. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that too, because I'm reading actually, uh, I think I've read it in the past, but I'm like rereading it. It might've been on like Audible or something like that, but the, uh, the one minute salesperson, and I don't know if you guys have read that book, but somebody brought it up and rereading it. And I'm like, I mean, it's crazy in terms of everything you're saying there is like that they're saying in the book, but the, the key takeaway I really got from the book is like realizing, wait, like it's the basics. It's the simple stuff. I've heard these things before, but especially in this information kind of culture with content all day, podcasts, videos, it's like in books even too, it's like you find yourself like before you even finish a book, you're onto the next one and learning a new tactic and then it's new and then this and you, I have this kind of like, I need to clear things out and recenter and be like, wait, exactly as you said right there, it's the basics, it's the simple things. You can take the basics and, and make them confusing and different like that. But if you don't keep it simple, as you're saying, you confuse yourself and then you probably end up confusing the buyer at, at the same time. hundred percent. And so we, and it was actually after the book and when I write the next edition of the book, get even clearer to your point, Costa, on what is an authentic conversation. I started, I wrote a speech around the book and it was helpful to clarify it. And so what we say now is, look, about authentic conversations where you're just anchoring on your buyer three times in every conversation. You understand first why they are talking to you. What's their goal for the conversation? Middle is you confirm where they're seeing value in your product, in your story, so you can personalize, right? Because until you personalize a product presentation, you are pitching. Until you can say, you told me, so I'm sharing this, you are pitching. So that's the, that's the second part. And the third part is any good relationship is based on reciprocity. So if they're seeing value, you got to make asks for them to take actions, right? Because you have to move forward together. We don't close deals. They close deals. We just guide them. So it's like buyer goal, buyer personalization, buyer actions. And if you remember that, it's about your buyer, where they're seeing the most value, how you can personalize them, what actions they'll take to realize that value. Man, life just gets a lot easier. They'll just build the target and the bullseye for you. Yeah, I love that point. This is kind of like a selfish question, but like I had to kind of answer at this point. Me and Lisa talk about this all the time, and she really helps coach me through it too. But like, I consider myself, and I don't like to say I'm not something, but I don't consider myself like a natural salesperson. And the more people I talk to, um, I feel as though they have this question or they always have this concern when answering it. So I'm selfish you can ask the question, but I think a lot of people have this. Please. I mean, it relates to the authentic buyer journey. But how do you approach the sales process when you don't really like selling people and you always feel like, hey, like I'm selling people, stuff like that. And I don't want to reach out to them or like cold message um, them, I feel like I'm bothering them. What is like a, a mindset shift or a way to approach that for somebody who, who's nervous to really get into the sales process? Yeah, if your focus is making your buyers more successful, that is an act of service. And, and so let me give you three examples. When you're prospecting, if you're sharing stories about what has already worked for people like that, so you're not doing mass spam, but you're targeting people in pure ways, you are serving them by educating about the possible. If you're asking questions in your outreach emails, which you should, which educates people about what is possible, you are serving them, right? In a sales process, we focus a lot on a success statement. In the book, we talked about it as an impact statement. We now talk about impact questions that lead to a success statement. What's that more successful future? 
Um, and the, uh, the success statement, it honestly is also a way of serving your buyer. When you recap for them what they saw as the most valuable and what you could do, what, what goal and gap they had, honestly, they're going to forget that in like 30 seconds after they walk or five minutes or whatever, two days. And so bringing them back to that moment of this was the reason, remember, this was the value in our first conversation. Is it still a priority to solve that for you? And then finally, you know, customer success people often are the ones that must say, hey, I don't want to sell. And we just say, look, the highest form of customer care is introducing a current customer to a solution that worked for a peer. You just give them the opportunity to deepen value. It's like, why would you want to do that? And so it all it does come back to mindset like this is about service to others. And when you serve others, you do better. Um, so that's why we think about it. But it does impact your language. I mean, your language has to focus on in the spirit of, you know, thought this would be interesting to you and it has to be genuinely interesting. I, I almost every email I write has some prompt for them to guide me what to do next. That's right. Cause it, yeah, it's their process, right? I, I, cause it, he and I talk about this all the time that, you know, there's an art to selling. We shouldn't even call it selling because really what it is is problem solving and asking good questions and, and determining where there's a need. And then the repetition of it isn't, it, it isn't, you know, a, a robotic. It's just to your point, Brent, people forget, you know, whatever we're, whatever we have a solution for, so whatever we're quote selling, we know it, we do it every day. But the reason we're in front of these clients or customers is because they don't do it every day. And so they don't know everything that we do. So it isn't condescending or sales pushy to repeat. It's almost out of respect to make sure that before we go any further, we're all on the same page. And if things have changed, then we can pivot and, and you know find what need is now most and most critical and, and come up with solutions to that problem. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, wh why, why do you think now is so important to have this type of, I mean, we've all had clients and customers for forever. Why do you think this, this type of switch in mindset and approach is so critical? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, you know, the a pandemic initially hurt us, we had a pretty big drop in revenue like month to month, but then over time has dramatically helped us um, because it's the noise in the environment that is not going mm. away. I mean, we're all overwhelmed and checked out, right? And so um, I think, Costa, this is the other thing that is in your comment, Lisa, when you engage and sell this way, you dramatically differentiate yourself from others who are just leading with, hey, it's about me, it's my product, my success is to, you know, why were you interested in talking to me? Was there anything that stuck out? Is there anything you're working on you think we could help you with? This is what I heard you say was most valuable. It just differentiates you. So I think it's really important because the, the future of all go-to-market sales anywhere is personalization. If you're not personalizing and speaking specifically to each of your buyers in some way, um, people are going to check out. They're overwhelmed. They just, they don't need more noise in their life. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, that's why it's like in, you know, technology, ironically, right? All this information technology and social media has made it a lot harder 
to break through the noise. Yeah. And so you need to, at this point, figure out how to personalize at scale. How do you, how, so, so that all is awesome, right? And it's effective once you are in front of that client customer that has the problem. How do you get to that point? How do you um, lead generate? How do you prospect? Um, because you don't have that much time. How, how are you making an impact? Yeah, I wrote a post this morning uh, on about buyer personalization at scale on prospecting. And basically what I, I opened the post by saying, um, you know, this is a true story. I, uh, I had a meeting with a CEO at a recent conference and he said to me at the outset, you know, I delete several hundred emails a day. And I responded to yours. So let's get going, right? He's <laughs> in a big hurry. And I took bravo. I took a risk rather than just jump in. And I said, okay, so tell me why. And he in rapid succession said, because you named a specific initiative about my company, because you asked some interesting questions. He responded on the third email, asked some interesting questions that got me thinking, because you name dropped peers that you worked with in the industry. So I felt like you were credible. And because you, my VP of sales, forwarded the email and said, I think this could be an interesting meeting, right? So, and better than that, I mean, you need to, we, um, we use Apollo, plug for Apollo, because they're really good at supporting personalized prospecting, right? You can both build in, we talk about a personalization postulate and credit to Vanguard Prospecting. It's a company who will help with outbound prospecting. Got the term from them. It's a great term. Is we will lead our emails with a personalization postulate. And it takes some time, right? You need a technology, but we also, we, we use fractional support. We have team members that are based in Latin America, really intelligent, really capable people that build our personalization postulates, right? So we lead every sequence um, with some kind of personalization and we do sequences in peer groups. So our name drops are meaningful and we embed questions. Um, and that's great. We've seen an average of a 5% open rate compared to a 1% and sometimes as high as 10%. So you got to slow down a little bit to personalize at scale, but with the right strategies and process, uh, you will get a very dramatic difference in results from just your spray and pray email. Yeah, I think the personalization thing, it's funny because it's been, it was a topic of our last podcast. And then a lot of people on LinkedIn talk about it too. Like some people are against personalization to an extent uh, and feel as though that I'm trying to articulate in the best way, but essentially like getting right to the point and just like making it where the person sees it. And it automatically is like, they, they presented something, but it's not like super personalized where it's like trying to build credibility that is like almost inauthentic. Like you can tell it was just like very like, automatically uh, personalized and it kind of like leads me to, I don't know if you have something to say on that too, but it kind of leads me to the idea of like, we live in this, everybody's talking about automation and automation, automation um, and sending out like mass emails, mass cold emails and, and DMs and things like that too. Uh, but personally for me, that, is, that has never been effective. It just feels like weird if I'm sending the, these messages. Like I have to at least say like, like when I, I'll give you an example. This probably helps the, the audience listening to when I reached out to you on LinkedIn, um, First of all, when I was reading the book, the first chapter when Lisa mentioned about the real estate thing, 
Um, I, I've seen the book at, at Barnes and Noble like a bunch of times. I, I never, I didn't pick it up. And then eventually one day I was like, I've seen this book a couple of times. Like I need to pick it up. And then the, the first couple of pages I'm reading, I'm actually in the sauna at the gym, which is people find it funny, but cause I'm like sitting there reading, everybody always asks me questions like, what are you reading? Like, don't you get like sweaty holding the book? I'm like, yeah, I try to like hold it out and move it to here and a towel, but it's like, I'm trying to, trying I'm to get multitask, the last time. Man, we're all multitasking all day long. I love it. <laughs> you got it. And then I, I read that that part, at least it was much about real estate. And it's like, the real estate agent helped you buy a house in Boston. I'm like, well, I'm from Boston. And then it was like, the next couple of pages, then when we moved, like, helped me buy the place in the North Shore. I was like, well, I'm actually from the North Shore, not Boston. It's just like, it's, everybody says they're from Boston. So I took that in, in reading it. And then I, I'm sent you a message on LinkedIn saying like, something along the lines of, hey, Brent, loving the Rev- Revenue Acceleration Playbook. As I read the first couple of pages, and I, I just gave that example of like, saw you're from Boston and moved to the North Shore. I'm from here, like, would love to connect. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, um, and asked you to come on the podcast. And, uh, I think like that for me is something that feels authentic. Cause I'm like, of course I'm reaching out to you cause I want to connect, maybe have you on the podcast. I'm thinking that in the back of my head too, but it's actually the truth. And I don't know what your process is like seeing a message like that. But to me, if somebody reaches out with that, I kind of feel at least this person like went out of their way to actually reach out to me. It's not like this mass campaign that I can tell. It's just like they use some software and, and replace my name with something, um, and targeted my industry specific. So Curious to hear your thoughts on that, like array of different things that I try to package it up into like one clean. No, I mean, that, that is the, uh, that's the home run, right? Where you can uh, personalize to that level and people definitely engage at a different level. Like I've invested time, you know, we are all built for relationships, right? And so they've invested time in you and there's almost some social karma, like a good person is going to respond to that. We feel an obligation as we should. Even if to say, hey, you know, now's not a good time, right? I, I don't have time, but thank you for spending the time learning it. Um, that, so that's the that's the home run. And I think we encourage, you know, when you're reaching out to CEOs or, you know, C-suite executives of big companies, you do need to personalize down to that level. Uh, in this post, we talk about, a, you know, a couple, a couple of ways you can get m- more economies, right, in your outreach. One is if you, uh, we do a lot of work on ourselves and with our clients on just find a company initiative. Uh, there's a company we work with that ha- it's, has a platform for engagement through events, right? So finding initiatives around inclusion right, is a big driver there because trying to include all kinds of employees or trying to include uh, remote, you know, as well as in-person employees. So if you find a company initiative or you find a CEO podcast, right, where they've talked about things, now you can reach out to six, eight, whatever, 10 people that might be part of your ABM motion, or you're just trying to hit different parts of the organization with something they care about. Um, and the other thing is re- really just thinking about your campaigns is not, you know, thousands at a time, but who are my, you know, we go to industrial automation companies or higher ed companies that are working on enrollment or retention. Then you can name drop two or three companies you've already worked with, and it's meaningful to everybody on that list, right? It gives you some uh, social proof, right? Social credibility. So there are ways to not have to individually personalize uh, but still be speaking personally uh, to each person that you're engaging. Also cuts down on, you know, we're trying to cut down the noise on our clients, but that actually cuts down the noise on on ourselves. Yeah. When, when we become hyperly targeted like that, yep. becomes more personal naturally, 
we sound more authentic. We have more value to give because we've done it for somebody else. And then we can show the social proof, so to say, that, that that's happened. So you're really, you're checking off a lot of boxes that make the process authentic and, and make it much more streamlined and, and impactful. Yeah. I think the big thing too is just like doing at the same time. It's funny that the guy in our podcast that we just uh, should be coming out today, uh, I asked him a question of like, who are your favorite copywriting inspirations? Because he does uh, email marketing and cold emails and stuff like that. Um, and his answer was more of like, I think he maybe gave like a couple or talked about it, like some people that he follows on LinkedIn. But he said the best way to really do it is to actually send out the emails, whether that's an email or DM um, on LinkedIn, a message and, and see what works, see what doesn't work. And then you can just tweak and, and, and go from there. But um, I especially struggle with that of like analysis of like, what's the best message I can send to this person? And I have to kind of like recenter myself and be like, you know what? Just take the action. Uh, and Lisa like always says like, just like do it. I'm like, okay, fine. But I need to, I need to, I need to think of the best thing to do. Like, yeah. I, I got to do this. Maybe this is the best method, but it's like at the end of the day, if you just send the messages, you could get no responses back and then sit there and be like, okay, well, this message is not working. I've tried it this many times and like, maybe I'll try this one. So, um, but then you take that approach of like the beauty of podcasts of like listening to someone like you that has done it and people in the past that have success with certain messages and then um, balance it off in a way that you, you don't over analyze the process, but you actually like take inspiration and, and see what works for you because what works for like you and your company might not work for me or Lisa when we reach out to people because our, our voices are different. It's a different product or service. Um, so I think it definitely does differ in terms of the situation, but just like just trying things. I, I, I've always had the best. Um, results, whether I like to admit it or not. Yeah, yeah, no, and you, you. I don't know if you guys remember this theme from the book about. I wrote an article. Now we kind of talk about it as playbook-based learning and iteration. Right? Is this like uh, a couple of years ago? This comes up less because we uh, unwind the objection pretty quickly. Uh, you know, you would always be like, "Oh, well, I have experienced people," and we finally started to say, in this market environment. Do you really care about their experience? Because that's the rearview mirror. What I want to know is yeah. what, what's their, what is their strategy for agile iteration and learning? What you just said, Costa, right? Because in the current buyer environment where we all, as you build out your target buyer personas and you think about three value props and six to eight buyers that Gardner tells us and the different segments you sell into, right? Because every... You know, in real estate, you have kind of the whatever, the high-end buyers and the early buyers. And I mean, every market has major segments. So now you have like, what is it? Two dozen, three dozen different conversations you can have, right? To get to the right. The only way you're going to figure that out is by learning quickly from your buyers and your peers. Only way you're going to figure it out. So this approach to agile iteration and learning is totally embedded within our consulting method. They're like, try stuff. Write down a playbook so we have a shared messaging framework, shared way of qualifying at every phase. Try stuff. Come back, stories from the field, what's working, what's not working. Take something from a colleague that's working. Give something that's working. Those are the teams that win a lot quicker. And how do you, when you go in and you're consulting on that, when you would take a, a, you know, large corporations, the mindset can be so difficult to change, yeah. right? So how... How how do you approach that when people are so baked into the traditional way of selling and their revenue is probably pretty good? What do you say? Two things. Um, what do you say to bring them into this style? And what is a 
typical pushback? Yeah, um, and it's a it's a great question. We are all of our proactive work is with early growth and growth companies. Call them up to you know twenty, thirty, forty million in revenue, so that the kind of half million to three to four to five million, the critical mass, and just forming their go to market teams, and then you know five to whatever twenty, twenty five, thirty, because they're like these known gaps. They just they struggle with building the arc of the conversation. Right. And so there's kind of mm -hmm. known uh, it's a lot easier there when you get up to the enterprise segment. Usually everybody has an agency and marketing and a sales methodology company they work with. They already have an established relationship with a couple there unless it's inbound to us or unless there's a really strong uh, relationship. We don't pursue the business. And so we'll mm -hmm. take that business uh, like an Alexmark or and ascend learning where there was a strong relationship with the buyer who we knew had the right men mindset, or there was a company we just kicked off called ABC Fitness where they, like you, Costa, they read the book and they're like, you know, we, we're trying to shift our team's mindset to this type of selling and connecting marketing sales and success. And so they reached out and just, you know, mindset alignment, they were going to be champions, no questions. Um, so that, that's, um, I don't know if that answers your question, Lisa, because it's, you know, the enterprise, they don't have to change. Um, and so if there's not a really well-known uh, internal initiative with a strong internal champion to shift this way, it's just not worth the headache of trying to convince them. Right, right. We eat our own dog field. Fail, fail fast. Win with the buyers you can win with, right? Focus on your ideal buyers and... People come to you, great, but go after the places where you win. Yeah, so like what right. I heard there is is you essentially have your own ideal buyer. You know which companies work best for your services, and I'm sure that comes into your um, prospecting strategy and, and makes it easier to target those companies. Um, in the beginning, let's say companies new, if you're working for them or they're just going about this in general of prospecting and, and building a, a, da a database, for, for lack of better words, should they be hyper-targeted in terms of the people that they're reaching out for, or should they um, more like broad-minded and, and see what, like essentially saying like niche, they niche down and see like, um, and pick a sp specific buyer profile, or they should they try a couple of different things and, and, and different profiles and see which one um, works for them, what messaging works for them? Um, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the earlier on you are, the more you need to go scatter shop, honestly. Just and we do work with early growth companies. And one that comes to mind, Tito, that's coming out of that phase, like entire higher education market. Okay, where do we get critical mass? Well, it's in sort of the large public, regional public universities, not the most prestigious, but they, okay, great, there's 800 of those. You don't need a whole 4,000. So let's scale through those. It was the same play with mainstay. So often early, you need to do that. Uh, is one part of the answer. The second part of your answer is one of the things people almost never do that they should do to know their ideal buyers is go write down your success stories, right? If you got five customers, if you got 50 customers, I mean, pick out your top five to eight stories. Why did they buy from you? Why do they keep buying from you? And who were the key buyers? Who is your winning coalition? So write down your stories because your stories are gold. The best selling is selling forward what you've already proven with other customers. I mean, it just 
It is, and we forget that all the time. Um, the third part of what you said, Costa, is um, the buyer persona framework, really, really powerful. We use it all the time in our engagements, but you need to think about buying group because buying personas, there's never an individual that's buying. You're always going to have a buying group and you need to think about the, you need to think for your buyers about who are our most three most critical and what's the story I'm telling across them. And so in our case, what we figured out is we need up to that 30 or 40 million mark. We need a CEO or a COO sponsor. We need the head of marketing and the head of sales bought in. Um, and the CEO and the COO, this is about, hey, you leading on your entire go-to-market team having a seamless buyer-customer journey. To marketing, this is like you develop a lot of great content that's never used for the rest of the organization because we need to version it for how everybody delivers it. So this is about empowering you to drive the positioning through your entire organization. And usually sales, it's there, there are some... Either they're not getting enough meetings or they, uh, they're not closing them at the right rate or they're not expanding. There's a revenue outcome they're targeting. If we don't get early engagement from those three, we won't take the engagement because it's not going to be a good partner. We'll get stovepiped. Somebody will come and you know say, hey, we're not getting enough ROI from this or what's, you know. And, and so we just, if those groups aren't lined up on, we need to get better at uh, a go-to-market strategy around, you know, positioning buyer value. We got enough business to focus on where, you know, where we win and have longer-term, uh, higher-value relationships. That's that's so clear. I love that. It's so clear and it's so simple and it's so easily identifiable as to who's who you're going to win with and who you're not. Mm. And each each person that you really need to connect with to make sure that that they're buying in, into what you're doing. It's it's saved so much time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and look, this is not uh, cost. This your point. It's not something you figure out like sitting down in a two hour session. It's just something yeah. you commit to. Like our goal is to get to our ideal buying group, and we want to look at our stories. You can also look at your data. Honestly, is like. Where have we had the longest? Who's worth the most? Uh, mm -hmm. Mark Roberts, I don't know if that's a name you know. We interviewed him for the book. Uh, it was a David Muir Scott connection. Brilliant dude. Um, you know, he at HubSpot, one of their growth strategies was he didn't look at the sales metrics. What he looked at first was the ideal buyer value. What was the enterprise value of those accounts? That's what we want to go after. I don't care if I'm closing through the funnel. I want the people that are going to come buy more, stay the longest. That's who we want to target. And we can all at some level through our stores and our data, figure that out a lot quicker because you will scale a lot quicker if you pay attention to your ideal buyer is and where you win the fastest. Makes sense. Love it. Where, it makes does, sense. where does the inbound versus outbound marketing play a factor? Where should there a certain balance that you should play a factor? Uh, how should companies be approaching the strategy versus inbound and outbound? Yeah, I think um, inbound, I mean, look, a lot of inbound, honestly, is just building brand awareness and hugely important. You know, it's something we underestimated. It was interesting as the book came out, it wasn't just a book, but we built a whole content strategy over the last 18 months. Uh, so, it, and our ability to get to that C-suite much higher because of that brand awareness. So inbound is so critical, just all of the, uh, you know, the way we optimize our website or the content we're putting out there or the ads we're putting out there on LinkedIn or 
SEO just to build awareness of who we are and what we do. Uh, so it has a ton mm -hmm. of branding value. Uh, you also can generate leads. Often what we see is when people ramp up an inbound strategy, their sales teams get a lot less productive because now a lot of people are coming to you that are not part of that ideal buyer profile. So what we encourage is, you know, if you're going to have a strong inbound program, you also need a strong nurturing program as a way of providing value to those people. It might be putting them into a monthly webinar cadence, right? It might be uh, just serving them back information. So you're not ignoring them, but you're not your, your sales team or, or your SDR team, whoever's qualifying that first meeting isn't spending all this time on people that are just kicking tires or don't have authority to buy or because um, it can be a big drag that way. It looks like what I'm hearing is, keep going back to the word, is, is process. And there's a process involved to doing this. There's no like one perfect message you send out to people, one strategy, and, and they respond back. It's no, you need to nurture the campaign, send multiple email messages, whether that's uh, LinkedIn, I'm curious about that too, uh, versus like, where do you send most of the messages? Is it, is it emails? Is it LinkedIn? Is it a combination? Um, but essentially what I'm hearing is this is a process and you need a playbook to do. And oftentimes that can be overwhelming, I guess, depending on the size of your company. So uh, what would be your suggestion for maybe a smaller company that doesn't have in that revenue range of two to 10 million, or when you were saying, I think 20 to, to 40 million, what is a way a, a smaller company can approach their their prospecting and lead generation and creating an authentic buyer journey? Yeah, I, I love what the way you summarize that is, um, you know, process, playbooks are process. Uh, and e even at the smallest company, um, you know, just agreeing on taking the 10% extra time to step back and coordinate on this. These are the campaigns we're running. And I can see in my Apollo dashboard where I'm getting the most opens and or clicks or opens and one of those nice and I'm not, not on a paid for Apollo, but we just love it. <laughs> I'm not getting paid to endorse it. You can actually kind of complete the circle within that the same dashboard showed interest, right? You can call out whatever you want. So you need some, you know, you, you build basically build different sequences together and then you look at together where are we winning? Right. And then you just agree on what are our foundational plays? If we're early on, is it a 60 second commercial that we go around the room and hear each other and revise it and come up with a common way of positioning our unique value? Is it that we struggle with, hey, we get a ton of engagement because we have a very engaging product, but we don't qualify to the right next meeting. Right. We don't get the right next people meeting. So everything dies after that initial interest. OK, well. You know, just think about what is a good first call, including what are your three or four most important qualifying questions. So I think the answer, Coste, is goes back to this idea that it, uh, in a really challenging environment, the more we write down shared tribal knowledge and then commit to iterating and testing and learning together, the faster we're going to link. So data, I think, again, I think the word I was looking for at the end when I was asking the previous question was uh, was data, but I couldn't really put it, put on it, but it was like, um, what I'm hearing there is like you essentially need data. Um, I guess some people, as you were saying in the beginning of this episode, you don't have to be over analytical in the data and being so crazy with it at the same time, but especially in the early stages, but even to make judgments in the early stages, you need to at least do stuff to then see what's working, what's not working, and then be able to tweak from there. But especially I, I've run into the, the issue before 
think shiny object syndrome kind of defines it, but it's like you're doing something maybe for like a week and then or two weeks and it's like, this is not working. I don't know why this is not working, but um, I was watching a video where it was like this funny, they, they called it something. I don't know if this is like an actual like thing or this person made it up. Who knows now in content? It's like everything you listen to in content. It's like from another book years ago and they're just repackaging it. But it's like talked about shiny object syndrome of like you find out about a new idea at the top uh, and then you go through and you're like, this is amazing. And you're just like blinded by like how perfect this could be and you go down a little bit and you're like whoa this is actually kind of hard like I, I, this is not as easy as i thought it was and you go down a little bit more and you're like oh my god this is not going to work i can't do this this is never going to happen and then you see another ad or content about another strategy and then you just repeat this cycle going back up blind to judgment of being like this is a great opportunity and then the 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 kind of the moral of the story being is if you're at that bottom level and it's hard and you just accept the fact, okay, this might suck. It's going to take some time to do, but you then, then will go into like the other category, which is further out, which is, um, I think it's like informed uh, optimism or something like that, where you're like, all right, this is going to be hard, get it cool, but we're going to do it anyways. And, and that's kind of the way you, you skyrocket. So I, I really like how you said that in terms of, uh, the playbook and analyzing the data, because you can't make the, the decisions based on a week, two weeks, a month, um, of doing something. And it's hard for some people to really realize that that's right and the um before data is pattern recognition but again back to the kurt yeah. delario example when you have a shared playbook which you've agreed to then you know your ability to pattern recognize as a team goes up dramatically well one of them to finish on a customer i mean one of the things that we do internally like we do art, is we wear each other out by throwing stuff at the wall we work with so many teams that have so many independent initiatives around content or processing or whatever, not coordinated because they didn't just sit down and agree on what we're testing. They wear each other out. They get frustrated. It, just sit down. Build your playbooks together. Spend a little time together. Agree to what you're testing. And then, as you said, Costa, iterate and learn. That's how you win in this environment. Yeah, Lisa always says about the uh, – when we chat, it's like the pattern recognition of stuff of like – and that only comes with experience. Like there's no way – I joke around being like, especially kids my age, like you, you think you know everything, but like you realistically don't know anything. And even when you get older, it's like you still don't know relatively a, a lot compared to everything you could possibly learn. Um, so the ego kind of gets in the way. But um, as I was saying, Lisa mentions like the, the pattern recognition thing of like, if you've been through it, you can recognize, okay, I've been here. Um, I got through it. This is what I did. Okay, let me try this here and get through it. Versus like, if you haven't actually gone through it and done the work, if you just read books, that's good. You might know what to do, like the knowledge of stuff to do and might be informed, but you don't know. You haven't been there enough to know, like, I've been here before. Here's how I navigate. Here's how I navigated and it didn't work before. Let me try something else. Um, and that only comes with experience and being able to be self-aware and recognize those patterns happening. So true. And taking the ego out, right? Ego just kills us. It's all about regardless of how successful we are or how long we've been in business, if we're not constantly reevaluating, looking within, looking to see what's going on in our industries and being able to change and, 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 and switch it up and get more effective and efficient and impactful, we're doing ourselves and our clients just a disservice. Yeah, It's fun to learn. Very well said on both your parts. We're starting a, the starting a series called Growth Mindset is Not Enough. And the point is, mm -hmm. we all talk about win-win, but our brains are not wired for win-win. I mean, our brains are literally wired to think about ourselves first and literally wired yeah. to start with a conclusion and then collect evidence to support that conclusion. And I say that because right. 
until you have the awareness that this is not natural behavior for us, that we need to shift as an individual on a team to iteration and yeah. learning, you fall back to a fixed mindset, right? Yeah, so true. So you got to shift to a learner mindset, but you also got to shift to a other-oriented mindset. It's almost as though, you know, we don't make things happen. Things happen through us. If you can think like that, it's it's uh, it's been helpful to me, right? So we always our egos like to say, "I did that. I I did all the heavy lifting, and this is why I'm successful, and this is why my team and business is successful." It's like, yeah, maybe, but um, if you think of it as it's happening through me, it's about learning. It's about asking. It comes back to asking the right questions, understanding somebody's needs, and being in service to others. Everything else falls into place. So we're going to have to have you back on to talk about mindset because we're coming to the end of our, oh, we would love that stuff, but we're coming to the end of our hour and we want to be respectful of your time. Um, so how can people get in touch with you if they would like to learn more about what your company does? Yeah. I mean, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. I respond to anybody who reaches out on LinkedIn. Cost is a perfect example. Um, but also if they, you know, the easiest URL is just authenticitywins.com which takes them to our book website, which is on our main website. And they can, you know, download a free chapter of the book there, the preface in the first chapter. And uh, they can, if they're interested, explore more. There's a lot of downloadable assets there. Wonderful. And Costa, can you show the book? I have it on Audible, but can you show the hard copy? Absolutely. There we go. Highly recommend All right. That's fantastic. Like I said, all kinds of golden nuggets out of, out of that. Um, all right, our audience, thank you so much. As always, we are grateful for you. Brent, we are grateful for you as well. We really appreciate your time and, and all of your wisdom. 